0: Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew uh, chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and as Pastor Ward said, we're looking and really uh, nearly concluding our study in Jesus' uh, sermon, sermon on the Mount. He finishes the sermon, we've been noticing, not with a new material, but with four warnings. Uh, he's given us his law of love and called us to love one another. And now he is repeatedly warning his people that he means it. That our only right response to his salvation is to walk in his law of love. And he's warned us uh, by telling us to beware of the broad way and to pursue the narrow way. To beware of false prophets and to trust God's word. And this morning he reminds us that there are many who are self-deceived. There are many who claim to know God, but don't know him at all. Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. There's a principle in verse 21, uh, then an illustration, and then we'll notice the solution. Here's the principle. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here's the illustration. On that day, many will come, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and there are passages where you call us to self-examination. And to sober judgment. And to be called to this before the last day when it's too late is a mercy and a grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us gravity this morning that's spiritual. Lord, that's not just uh, affected by a tone of voice or by a carnal mood, but by you really dealing with our souls today before the last day. Lord, we're all weakness. My preaching is weakness, our listening is weakness. And Lord, our only hope to be delivered from deception is your grace and your spirit. And so we pray that you do this in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, I was talking to a pastor friend and I was asking him how things were going in his church. And he replied by saying, well, we're seeing a lot of Christians getting saved. And of course, it's unusual in one sense to hear that, because the very definition of a true Christian is a true Christian is someone who is saved. But the reason my friend said that it was a great thing happening in the life of his church, that many of the Christians, people who've been in the church for years, not open hypocrites but the Christians in the church were getting saved, the reason this was a good thing is precisely because of the principle Jesus teaches here in the Sermon on the Mount. And the principle is summed up well in the old spiritual that not everybody talking about going to heaven is going to heaven. Not everybody saying Lord, Lord is actually a submitted follower of Jesus Christ. And no one can say it plainer than Jesus. He said it this way in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not only does Jesus lay down this principle that not everyone who claims he is their Lord actually knows him, actually is saved. But he actually introduces us to the fact that Self-deception can be so deep that you can argue with Jesus on judgment day about whether or not he's right about your salvation. These people, these men and women who Jesus fears could be among our midst, that's why this sermon is to his disciples. These men and women are those who this wasn't Jesus saying, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and you'll just be able to tell, obviously, which ones are hypocrites. He's telling us that there are some who will say, Lord, Lord, who we would only be able to describe as having thriving ministries. They have passion, they have uh, power. They cast out demons, they prophesy in his name, they're Christ-centered, they do all of this in his name. And yet, from among those who call Jesus Lord and who exercise tremendous power in ministry, Jesus says there will be many from that number who don't know him at all. And who, when he divides the sheep from the goats will be told to depart from him, not because he used to know them, but because he's never known them. Despite all of their attestation to knowing him, he does not claim to know them. And that, at the end of the day, is all that matters. Not finally whether you think you know God, but whether God knows you. This passage calls each of us to serious reflection It calls us to something that we're very uncomfortable with this generation. It calls us to what 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, to test ourselves, to see if we really are in the faith. It calls each and every one of us, each individual, to serious and sober self-examination. Does the Lord know me? Am I submitted to the will of God? Would Jesus consider me lawless or law-abiding? Do I speak God's word and display his power out of a submitted, obedient life or as a cover-up for a life of disobedience? We ought not to be afraid of these questions. Very often when Christians come to the warning passages of the Bible, they like to skip through them, read quickly, and get back to the comforting passage. But as long as you skip over the warning passages, there will always be a haunting, nagging question in your mind, am I really saved? And could it be that assurance of salvation is not found by skipping over the warning passages, by facing them in the stark reality they give? And actually finding that Jesus warns you, not because he wants your life to be under a cloud of doubt and despair, but he warns you because he wants you to have true assurance. He wants you to actually know that you know. He actually wants you to know you're saved. So he warns you so that you will escape anything fake and false and so that you'll know that you have what's real and true. That on the last day you won't hear, depart from me. I never knew you but you'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know your own temptation to doubt God's goodness, don't you? How did Satan first tempt Eve? By convincing her that God was holding out something good from her. By convincing her that God was trying to hold out this beautiful fruit that would give her the knowledge of good and evil and that would make her like God. And that root sin, God is not actually out for my good, led to all kinds of other sins. In the Exodus, when God had delivered a people from slavery, what happens when they get out into the desert? Oh, we'd like to go back to Egypt. They had cucumbers and leeks and garlic. All the seasoning is back in Egypt even though they'd been delivered from slavery, even though you have been delivered from so much, the tendency of our soul is to do what? To go back and doubt the goodness of God. The disciples were in a ship, sorry, in a boat with Jesus in a storm. Jesus who's like fed 5,000 miraculously. Jesus who can heal at will. The disciples are in a boat in a storm with him and when he sleeps they say, don't you even care we're gonna die? If you take that spirit into this sermon, this sermon will kill you. If you take an ongoing doubt in the goodness of God and then hear him warning you, not many who say to me, Lord, Lord, are actually saved, it will only stir up the worst doubts in God in your soul. But you've got to know this. The one who is saying to you, make sure it's real, make sure it's true, make sure you don't just profess my name, but you actually know my salvation, that same God is only doing it to do your good. He's warning you so that what's described in this passage will never happen to you. He is not aiming to torment those he's going to judge, but to save those who might otherwise be self-deceived. And so this morning we want to look at, first of all, the principle that he gave to us. The general principle is clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now to enter the kingdom of heaven in this context is referring to going to heaven when you die, not simply becoming part of the church or part of God's kingdom here on earth, but we're actually talking about final salvation, entering in the kingdom of heaven. Where God is, God is currently in heaven, and those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who, when they die, enter into the place where God is perfectly ruling and reigning. And what Jesus is saying is that there are many who down here on earth will profess faith. They'll confess Christ. They will not call him a man. They will not call him a great teacher. They'll call him Lord. They'll make an orthodox confession of faith. And yet, they will not go to heaven. They will not be with him. They will not be with him forever. Now, let's be very clear. There is nothing wrong with confessing the faith. There is nothing wrong with confessing that Jesus is Lord. We're told in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I want to, con- I want to encourage every man, woman, and child who's here. You should believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. But if you would lean on him, receive him, trust him, he'll save you. From whatever depths of sin you're in, from whatever depths of delusion you're in, if you put your trust in him, he will save you. But do not play with him. Do not simply name his name. His name is not a magic spell. His name is not a talisman or an amulet that you just sort of add to yourself as sort of some insurance policy that will get you through the judgment day. Anyone who names him as Lord, which he is, must bow the knee, must actually submit If you understand that the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Jesus, the only right response is to repent, to turn from your sin and believe, not simply to play around with the name of Jesus. If I had a boss, if I called a man a boss but never went into work for him, you would say I was a delusional. If I called a man a president but did not live in that man's country or obey the laws of that land, you would think I was delusional and it's useless to call a person by a title, but then ignore the implications of that title. And Jesus is warning us that there are many who will say, Lord, Lord, but they've never really reckoned with the Lordship of Christ. Now notice this here, notice that he tells us that if we are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, if we're going to go to heaven when we die, If we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, notice this. It says that we must do the will of his Father who is in heaven. We must obey. We must obey the Lord Jesus Christ if we're going to be saved. Now, this is not something new. Jesus is not tacking on something, whoa, that was out of left field at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This has been the driving force of the entire sermon. We were told at the start of the sermon that the people who are blessed by God are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The people who are blessed by God are those who want to obey God. And then before Jesus walks through all the various commands in the sermon, he tells us in Matthew chapter five, verse 21, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the entire sermon has been saying this. You can't play with me. You must obey me. Only those who obey me will be saved. There's no way around that. Now, we have to add two caveats, don't we? We have to make sure that two things are clear. It's not like the Sermon on the Mount is teaching something different than the rest of the Bible. Do not read this and say, oh, so what Jesus is saying is if I work hard enough, I'll enter the kingdom of heaven. If I'm perfectly obedient enough, Then I'll enter the kingdom of heaven. That is not what's being said. The whole Bible is devoted to teaching us that salvation is not by works, but it's by grace. The Sermon on the Mount is not some strange anomaly in the rest of the scriptures. The Sermon on the Mount comes from the Lord who gave us the rest of the Bible, but what the Sermon on the Mount is saying is not you must obey in order to get to heaven, but what it's saying is if you truly will, if are saved, you will obey, and the difference is massive. You see, the gospel is this. The gospel is that though we've sinned against God, Though we've rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed, every moment of our lives, Jesus Christ has died on the cross for sinners, and he has given us his righteousness. He has covered our wickedness with his righteousness just by believing and believing alone. But here's the thing. Every single person who believes also receives. Everyone who believes in Christ also receives his Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit works obedience in you. You're saved by grace, and then the Spirit works obedience in you by that same grace, not working in it enough to save you, but working in it so to show the reality of your faith, because faith without works is dead. Listen to the Old Covenant promise. This is so amazing. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. This is God's promise to His people. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit, and I will put within you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone, the heart that would never obey me, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's tender, and I will put my spirit within you, and I love these words, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is saying here, all those who are going to heaven are the ones I'm causing to obey. All the ones who are going to heaven are the ones who have my spirit within them. They're being moved, yes, against great opposition, yes, through many falls, but they are being moved steadily and continually to obey my words. And so here, Jesus lays down the principle. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There is one group of people and one group of people alone who will enter the kingdom of heaven, and that is those who obey his word. Now, just for the tender conscience among us, let me make sure I say this. One of his words is that you must obey his command to ask for the forgiveness of your sins regularly. If you come at this and say, I have to obey God's will, which means I need to be perfect, go to heaven, you're not reasoning the same way the Sermon on the Mount does. You're taking verses out of context. You're missing the heart of the matter. Yes, all those who are truly saved will obey. And what will they do when they disobey? They'll obey his command to ask for the forgiveness of their sins, and they'll receive it. And here's the amazing thing. When you don't just say, oh, nobody's perfect, oh, everybody messes up, but you name the way you've sinned, you name it before God, you confess it and forsake it, guess what happens? You actually become a more obedient person. If we confess our sins, says John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and not just leave it there, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's the principle Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to heaven. There's a mass of churches on every street corner in this city. But not every church that says, Jesus, Lord, is full of those who are going to heaven. And this church, where we make an orthodox profession, the Jesus, Lord, even though we're a Baptist church, zealous to make sure that those who enter the church know the Lord, even there, deception is possible. And it It should burden every Christian heart to make sure that you're not among the deceived. The second thing we get here is an illustration. We got a principle, here's the illustration. Jesus illustrates the fact that many who say, Lord, Lord, will not be saved. He illustrates it by fast forwarding to the final judgment by giving us a glimpse of the last day. And then giving us this terrifying picture of those who are so confident and wrong on the last day. We often have this view that those who are not truly saved deeply know it in the pit of their being. That underestimates the power of self-deception we need to understand that we can be so fully self-deceived that we don't even know we're deceived. And Jesus tells us the mark, the primary mark of these people who are self-deceived. And here's what it is. They don't love. They don't love. Now, why do you say that? Because if you were going to boil down the phrases, the will of the Father, the will of the Father from verse 21, and then the phrase workers of lawlessness from verse 23, you would wind up with a law of love. You see, all of God's commandments are love, every last one of them. The whole point of every command in the Old and the New Testament has one goal, love. Jesus told us at the end of the the body of the sermon, he told us in Matthew chapter 7 verse 12, if you remember that, He said, for whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them. That is the law and the prophets. What is all the law and the prophets? What does the whole Bible teach? That as much as I want good done to me, this is the passion with which I should try to do good to others. This is the whole teaching of scripture, that you would love all the teachings we have in the Sermon on the Mount against lust, against murder, against needless divorce. What are they? They're just ways of fleshing out love. Stay married. Learn to love. Quit staring at other women. Learn to love. Quit wanting to kill your brother and being bitter. Learn to forgive and love. It's all love from start to finish. Jesus' view of lawlessness is not some arbitrary legalism. It's anyone who won't follow his beautiful way of love. And so what Jesus is saying about these people who don't know him is that they don't do the will of his father. And the will of his father is to love. And they're workers of lawlessness. They do all kinds of miracles, but none of it's happening out of a heart to love God and to love others. Now, we need to stare a little more deeply at the depth of their self-deception. We need to see the things that have clouded their minds to keep them from seeing their lovelessness. And we're all capable of this. It's, It's haunting to read this passage and to see how much I can focus on these things that won't stand up on the final judgment and not focus on the only thing that's going to matter on the last day. First notice, these men and women had a great confession of faith. They were not wonky in their theology. They confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And of course, in the context of Matthew, that just didn't mean they were saying, sir, sir, or master, master. They were seeing that this Jesus was the son of David, the king God had promised, and he was Emmanuel, not just a man, but God with us. He was the God man. They were literally taking in the fact that Jesus Christ was the God man. They were confessing him as Lord, but they didn't know him. They weren't saved. You can know tremendous amounts of doctrine and be unconverted. You can know clear orthodox doctrine and be unconverted. You can teach your kids the Nicene Creed. You can have them memorize the Baptist Catechism and you can even be passionate about those truths and be utterly unsaved. Martin Luther. Before he was converted, confessed his sins of the priest, gave his life to being a monk, preached through Hebrews, preached through the Psalms, knew the scriptures, had an orthodox view of God, and was utterly unconverted. There's many here who want to train for ministry. Training for ministry, getting an MDiv, no guarantee that anyone will be in heaven. Teaching Sunday school, no guarantee at all. Being able to better other people who are theologically shaky, no guarantee of salvation whatsoever. Now, does that make doctrine meaningless? Should we devalue doctrine? No, but we value doctrine insofar as it leads to love. Do you see that? 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction, the goal of our doctrine, the goal of what we teach is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Doctrine that only makes knowledge puffs up, and what puffs up is going to get knocked down by God on the final day. But doctrine that leads to love will never be turned away. And so Jesus warns us about taking an assurance of salvation merely from the clarity of our doctrine. The second thing that can delude you is passion. It's been pointed out by many commentators, isn't it interesting, they didn't just say Lord, they said Lord, Lord. Twice actually it's mentioned this way. Lord, 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 Lord. These were not simply dry academics. These were people who firmly, fervently, passionately held on to the name of Jesus, and yet they are not saved. You can have zeal for God and not be saved. Romans chapter 10 says, I bear them witness, about the Jews in Paul's day, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Many people have zeal, but honestly, it's a function of personality. Sometimes zeal is a function of culture. Sometimes zeal is the fact that when you get in front of a few hundred people, there's a natural excitement that just kind of comes out of you, sort of a nervous energy. Sometimes zeal is just because it's exciting to hold forth for truth in a world of lies. There can be a million deluding ways that make you think, because there's passion, I must be saved. Passion alone is no proof of salvation. Take no comfort in simply having passion. It is no proof of all that you will be saved on the last day because you're on fire. That is delusional. That's what Jesus is trying, he's trying to pull that rug out from under you. Does your passion move you to careful obedience to God's word? Does your passion move you to die to yourself? Is your passion a thrill for your soul? but not a driving force in moving you to die to yourself in service of others, that passion may be of the devil and not of the Lord. These people speak God's word. They speak God's word. They prophesy, the Bible says. Do you see that? It says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now in the New Testament, prophecy could include something very similar to just preaching Christ. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul says, when you read this, that is when you read this book of Ephesians, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Prophets were people who had Christ revealed to them and they explained Christ to other people. Prophecy could also be something more occasional like when Agabus prophesied the famine in Jerusalem, or when Agabus prophesied uh, the suffering that Paul would endure, or when the Corinthian Christians were told about sometimes prophecies happening in the body that would expose unbelievers' secret thoughts in their midst. All of these have this in common, though. It's a speaking of a word from God. And there are many who will speak a word from God and not be saved. In fact, that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 when he speaks about prophecy. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And by am nothing, Paul means not a Christian. I'm not saved. Powerful prophetic words without love There is no salvation. It's not that that person needs to mature, it's that they need to be converted. Now, I should say this after every point, but let me say it here. Are we saying doctrine doesn't matter? No. Are we saying passion doesn't matter? No. Are we saying that prophecy is bad? No. All of these things are good unless they're being used as a mask to cover up lovelessness. That's where the problem lies. You've got to get the place wrong. You could read this passage and say, we don't care about doctrine. We don't care about passion. We don't care about prophecy. We don't care about miracles. We don't care about casting out of demons. That would be the wrong conclusion. What Jesus is getting at is when there's fruitful ministry that has none of the fruit of proven character and Christ-like character, then that Ministry is delusional. It makes me think of the ministry of Roy Clements. Roy Clements was perhaps the greatest Baptist preacher in the last 50 years. In England, he was Mark Dever's pastor during uh, Dever's time at Eden Baptist Church in Cambridge. I remember hearing a story of Mark Dever saying his greatest regret in moving back to America from England, where he did his schooling, is that his children wouldn't grow up under Roy Clements' preaching. But in 1999, all of a sudden it came out that Clements was involved with a man in the church and was leaving his children and his wife to be with this other man. You can still go online and find Roy Clements' justification for homosexuality. He would still say, Lord, Lord, but he's become lawless. And unless God leads him to repent, there'll be a rude awakening on the last day. And there are many here who would say, I never wanna wind up in a homosexual relationship. I never wanna leave my wife and kids. But you do it with pornographic literature all the time and pornographic images on the computer and you, you don't tremble. You don't tremble that you would say, Lord, Lord, and at the same time, fill your mind with a harem of sexual morality? Repent today and repent forever and do not believe the lie that victory is not possible. It's absolutely possible. We can walk in victory over sin. In fact, if we don't gain a pattern victory of sin in our lives, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is this not what the Word of God is saying? Or will we be a congregation that plays with Jesus? You can be deluded by doctrine. You can be deluded by passion. You can be deluded by prophecy. You can be deluded by casting out demons. You can cast out demons and not be saved. In Matthew chapter 10, verse one, Jesus gave Judas the authority to cast out demons. He gave all of the apostles the authority to cast out demons, but Judas was not saved. There was no Christ-like love in Judas's life. And so whereas in the other apostles, love and devotion marched hand in hand with prophecy and miracles, in Judas, it was a black heart with, with really an empty authority. You may have cast out demons. You may have seen God do supernatural works of power. But there ought not to be an arguing backwards that says surely anyone like me who's done stuff like that must be saved. Jesus is here to intervene with that thinking, to to lead you away from any delusional ideas about what constitutes a true ground of salvation. You may have been used in healing Is healing bad? Amen. Healing is not bad. Healing is good. More of it, please. Can we reason back from, I saw someone healed through my own ministry, therefore I must be saved. Not at all. That's what Jesus would stand in the way of. Notice what he says. He says, they did mighty works in your name. They weren't even doing it in their own name. They were giving Jesus all the glory, at least on the surface. But you need to understand something. When you think of the miraculous, you ought to think of the supernatural. Instead of when you think of the miraculous, you always think of God. What do I mean by that? I mean the miraculous is always supernatural, but the miraculous is not always from God the Father. Not even in the Bible. If you go back and read uh, Pharaoh's magicians in Pharaoh's court when Moses is confronting the magicians in Pharaoh's court, what do they do? They turn staffs into snakes. They turn water into blood. They turn water into frogs. They have miraculous power. There are real people who know nothing of Jesus with real miraculous power in the world. And the presence of a miracle is not proof positive that God is involved in a thing. What's proof positive that God is involved as in a thing is when there's miraculous power combined with the preaching of the gospel and the fruit of Christian character. That's from God. But take one of those things out, make it alone, and it's a demonic distortion. It will deceive you. It will lead you to thinking you're saved when you are not. I can say this I know there's actually a child in this room who wouldn't be alive if the elders had not prayed that God would open their mother's womb. God's used us even in creating miracles. So I must be saved. It's not it at all, it's not it at all. God can do mighty things through you when there is actually no real work of God happening in you. Well, we've seen the the principle, seen the illustration, now let's look at the solution. Beloved, Satan is a deceiver and we are self-deceivers. We are capable of convincing ourselves we're on a a road to heaven while we're walking on a road to hell. What are we to do? How can we avoid the self-deception? Well, first of all, notice this. The root of the problem is this. The self-deceived are not known by God. That's the the root of the problem. The self-deceived are not known by God. God. Do you see that there? And then I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And he goes, he he says, I never knew you. That's the problem. They're not known of God. But here's the thing. When a person is known of God, it's always transformative. When a person is known by God, it's always transformative. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. When God knows you, you will also know Him. It always goes together. When He knows you, He'll impart the knowledge of Himself to you, that you're a sinner that you're in need of a shepherd, that you're in need of a shepherd, not just who will lead you to live a better life, but who will lay down his life for the sheep. When you know that, it's because you're known. And when you know that, it always transforms, not perfectly, not immediately, but continually, progressively, and truly. John chapter 10, if he knows you, here's what John chapter 10 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So my sheep hear my voice, they know me, and I know them. And what happens when God knows someone and they know him? They follow him. The knowledge is always transformative. Why? Because when you see the glory of God, it's like seeing something beautiful in this world. You've got to look again. You've got to pursue it. There's an attractiveness and a delight in the knowledge of God that Christians hunger and thirst for. When they see Him, they want Him. They get all their sin exposed. They see how much they don't follow Him, but they just keep moving forward because they want Him above everything. Sometimes, you know, Jesus will say to the disciples, Do you want to leave me? And what did true followers say? Leave you. Where would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So let me close by saying two things to you. If you would avoid self-deception, you must do two things. If you would avoid self-deception, you must do two things. You must soak yourself in the love of God. You need to plunge yourself like you're a teabag in the boiling hot water of God's love, except he's the one who permeates the water with flavor. So reverse the illustration, do whatever you need to do. (laughs) But you need to marinate in the love of God. The only thing capable of making you loving is God's love. That's the only thing. In this is love, says John, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. See the the logic? You've been loved. If you've been loved, you should love. But there's no idea here that you're just going to drum up some love and get yourself to heaven. The idea is that even though you don't deserve one slice of heaven, one moment of heaven, even though you don't know love at all, God has loved you. And since he's loved you, you ought to love one another. But the second thing is, and this is the reason for these passages, you must take your discipleship more seriously. Whatever degree God is exposing you of playing around with him, of being content with naming his name or spouting off his doctrine without actually seeing the transformation of love. And I'm not saying the transformation of you learn to bark out biblical orders at other people or even at yourself, but actually the transformation of learning to love. That must be pursued if you would know you're saved. Listen to this passage from 2 Peter 1. I'll close with this. He has granted us his precious and very great promises. He's given us great promises of salvation, beloved, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. You can become like God, not God, but like God in character through his promises. He tells us, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, because you're saved, because you know God, because you've got his promises, listen to this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. Notice this, it is not because God has loved you, set the cruise control and coast on down the highway. That's not what's being said. Because you have these promises, Take your faith and add to it. Something else that'll save me? No. What's the natural implication of it? Add to your faith virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge. Add to your knowledge self-control. Self-control steadfastness. Steadfastness godliness. Grow as a Christian. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't think you're going to stumble into becoming more mature. Fight for it, read for it, listen for it, interact with other believers, encourage for it, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness, repent of your sins for it, pursue real godliness. People who learn to love are not self-deceived. People who learn the love of Christ and to love like Christ will, will not be deceived by the devil. They will not on the last day hear from me, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus isn't sending away anyone who loves like himself. He's gonna bring them into their true home. Heaven, as Edward said, is a world of love. And he's going to take all of those who know the love of Christ and are learning to love like Christ, and he's gonna show himself so that they are like him in everything. And they're surrounded by others like him as well. Press on to that end, and you'll make your calling and election sure. You'll know that you're one of his. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We beg you for serious and sober self-reflection. We beg you not to let us be self-deluded. We beg you not to think that just because we've heard a sermon on self-deception that we're not self-deceived. Or because we've preached a sermon on self-deception, we're not self-deceived. Lord, let us see the truth of your love and let us through death to self and mortification of sin learn to love ourselves and know that this character could only be formed if you were truly at work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.